Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. Sean mentioned if you are visiting, if you're visiting, I'm sorry, please come back. Um, And and here's the reason why I say that. Uh, I feel very blessed to be a part of this congregation. Uh, And here's the reason why. Uh, Every week, the Bible is opened and Christ is preached here. And we spent a couple years away from Kansas City. We moved away, and we were going through the process of looking for a home church. And while it was neat to see different bodies of Christ, occasionally we would go into a service and you wouldn't even hear Jesus' name. And so um, I'm, I'm glad that I'm a part of this body right here. Uh, on, that, uh, on that note, I just want to encourage everybody to read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. I read something uh, the other day, and it said only 39% of people that attend service at least once a month. So that's a pretty big group. Only 39% pick it up on a regular basis. So uh, if you have one that has too many these and thous in it, uh, pick up one that uh, you can relate to and that speaks to you. Uh, That's very, very important. Uh, There's a story of of an old pastor, and he's preaching to his congregation about biblical illiteracy, and he looks at a guy on the second row, and he says, Sir, tell me what the epistles are. And the guy kind of shifts in his seat a little bit, and he says, well, the epistles, those are the wives of the apostles. (laughs) And if you're not laughing, then that's for you. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to start off by telling a God story. We need more God stories. We need to hear more about what God's doing right now in the lives of people. And so here's how this came to be. At the beginning of the year, I thought I'm going to do something a little bit different, and I'm just going to pick one book of the Bible, and I'm going to start going through it, and I'm just going to go slow and start to study. And so I chose the book of Acts. Now, I started on the first. And as we were unpacking our house because we had just moved, I found these CDs, and they were on different books of the Bible. And so I found Acts. I thought, this is cool. I can put it in my car. I can listen to it when I go back and forth, more studying. And so on January 8th, eight days in, I get, an, I get a note from Sean Phillips that says, hey, you want to preach sometime? And my first thought was, Ben Phillips is messing with me. <laughs> but here's the thing. As I started thinking about it, we've been going through this series on unearthing true identity. And the next chapter of Acts, Acts 9, we have the most incredible identity transformation in the Bible, at least in my opinion. And that is the man Saul who becomes Paul. And so I've named this uh, Life Locked, um, Rebirth of a Radical. And Life Lock, obviously one of those companies that is supposed to keep your identity safe. Um, but it's a little bit of a play on words. But Paul, later on, after his conversion, he says that he is a slave of Christ. His, his life is literally locked up with this person of Jesus after he changes his life. So that's what we're going to be uh, talking about today. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to start off. We're just going to read through this first part of Acts chapter 9. This will be our text. It says, But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So he hasn't even gotten to Damascus yet because bad word spreads, spreads quickly. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. So then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray real quick. Father God, as we read your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that the Holy Spirit um, would just... Um, just knock us off our feet, uh, Lord, as your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, when I say identity, this is audience participation time, by the way. What do you think of when I say the word identity? You can just yell it out. Hmm? Who you are? Yep. Anything else? Oh, you guys got to help me out. Come on. Identity theft, right? So now they have, I don't know if you read about this, but in Australia, uh, they are actually testing out facial recognition technology um, to, to identify you. And, of course, we had thumbprints, then we had retinal scans, and now we have these facial recognitions. These are all things because there are things that make us unique, right? Well, I, uh, let's see. God said to Jer Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, he said, I knew you before I formed you in the womb. He knew you. He knew your identity, your true identity, not what gets lost in this world. And so what we all are trying to find, our true identity, which is only found in Christ. So the first thing that identified us, and, and Sean did it, he told you my name. And so our names are one of the first ways that we introduce people to ourselves. Um, who doesn't like their name? Is there anybody in here that doesn't like their name? <laughs> Growing up with friends, there was always somebody who didn't like their name. But uh, I think if you do a little more research and you find out what your name means, that it will carry a little bit more significance with you. God, God's really into names. And in case you haven't noticed, if you read through your Bibles, you're going to find out that God's really into names. Uh, he gave the first name when he created Adam and he named him man. Pretty descriptive. And then if you think about it, one of the first tasks that he gave Adam was to identify all the animals. He brought Adam to him and he said, listen, I want you to identify all of these. This ought to keep you busy for a while. 
Um, God has over 150 names in the Bible. Did you know that? The Hebrew people, over 150 names, and they all speak to the character of God, the characteristics of him. Um, here's some of them. Jehovah Jireh, which means God, our provider. God provides. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And Jehovah Shalom, God is peace. So all of these speak to different aspects of God. Uh, this are some of the ways that they were trying to identify him, but it spoke of who he was. There are some other significant name changes in the Bible. Uh, I think they're worth noting because uh, God actually took the time to change someone's identity on purpose. The first one is Abram. God, when he started his promise and he approached Abram, he said, I'm going to change your name. Abram meant high father. And he said, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which meant father of many. Now, he told this to Abram when he was about 100 years old and had no kids. And he said, look at the stars of the sky. If you can count them, then that's how many your descendants are going to be. And then he, he brought it to pass. And then he had a great grandkid called Jacob. And Jacob means usurper or a stealer. And he certainly lived into his name. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, he cheated his brother out of his birthright. He took it from him. Um, later on, he ended up wrestling with God on the side of a mountain. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he changed his name from stealer to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And you see that throughout the Bible. And even today, the, the nation of Israel wrestling with God. Um, even God's name, the great I am. The first time we hear it, he's talking to Moses. You guys know the story. He's talking with Moses out of the burning bush, and he's telling him to go to Egypt and free his people. And he said, well, who should I say sent me? That means people aren't going to believe me when I just say that somebody sent me. He said, tell them I am. The great I am has sent me. That's pretty all-encompassing. I simply am. And then if we fast forward into uh, the New Testament into John 18, what we see is um, this incredible story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it says, after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where he was in the garden. He and his disciples went into it. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police and the chief priests and the Pharisees this is a big group. Uh, they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I am he, Jesus told them. And Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with him. And when he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Now, that is terribly inaccurate, in, in, uh, I guess, indescriptive is what I should say. I think of things kind of like a movie in my head. And so if you can picture this, they're coming to the garden to get him. Jesus knows this, so he goes out to meet them. He doesn't wait for them to come. He's not hiding. He goes out to meet them. And he says, hey, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene. And his response, I am he, I am. And when he says I am, he levels all of the people that are with him. I don't know how much it is, 100 guys, 200 guys, but when he says that, they all drop to the ground. That's pretty amazing. That's the power of God's name. And then he decides to have a little fun with them. He says, now, who is it that you're looking for again? 
And I don't know if they were still clearing the cobwebs out of their, out of their head or what, but I would not have answered that question again. If I did, I would have stood behind someone. But they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I told you that I am he. And you replied, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. And so this was to fulfill the words that he had said, I have not lost one of those that you have given me. That's a, that's a pretty amazing story and uh, one that I don't think we hear often enough. But today we're going to talk about the man Saul. We know him better as Paul the Apostle, uh, one who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. All of these letters that are so important um, as we read and learn through the Bible today. This message will be a little bit teachy, uh, but if you can hang with me, I think one of the important things when we look at the life of uh, Paul is to understand where he came from. He's called the Apostle of Grace And why is he called that? I think if we look into his past and we see the darkness there, we can get a better appreciation uh, for why he's called that. So we'll look at his conversion story. Um, A little bit about his past. Saul grew up in a city called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And it was positioned right between Greece and Israel, so it was in Turkey. And this was a very educational city, lots of universities. They actually put it up there next to Athens and Alexandria in terms of Um, universities and and people who were learning. He also called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Now, this meant that his dad was a Pharisee. This was the strictest sect in Judaism, right? They prided themselves on knowing the law and keeping all of the elements. I mean, down to the T. Jesus would light into these guys from time to time as they would have these tussles, and he would say, listen, yeah, you guys are good at keeping the rules. You even take your spices, and you mark out a tenth of it when you tithe. And so, You guys do the rules well, but you're missing the point on everything else. And so they had boiled God down to a list of rules. No doubt that Saul was named after the first king of of, uh, Israel, King Saul, um, whose name meant asked for, uh, because the people of Israel had asked for a king. Of the tribe of Benjamin, both of them, King Saul and then also Saul here. Um, A little bit about his education. He talks a lot about Uh, basically his intellect and how he debated with a lot of philosophers of the day. He would have gone through three stages. The first stage would have been from about age 5 to age 13, where they basically learned most of the first five books of the Bible by heart. The next stage would have been for the best of the best, from the ages 13 to 15, only the best could go there. And then from there, some of them would go off into occupations, but for the ones who wanted to continue to be a lawyer, basically, a keeper of the law, be a Pharisee, they had to be accepted by a rabbi, and they would train under a rabbi for 15 years, from about 15 to 30, and uh, he trained under one of the most well-known there in Israel, said that These Pharisees had pretensions to superior sanctity. They were a very proud bunch, very self-righteous. They were big on knowledge. You know, Saul looks back, and he is writing to the churches, and uh, he says that um, knowledge puffs up. He's writing to the church in Corinth. Knowledge puffs up. It makes you feel like you're really important, but love builds up, which the Pharisees were lacking. Nothing will keep a Christian more immature Uh, than trying to keep a list of rules. If you're trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts, not only yours, but other people's, when you're looking at them, that's going to inhibit your spiritual growth. 
So he was sent to, to Jerusalem to study under the most famous teacher of that day, and he is still referenced quite a bit, a, na- a, man, a name uh, called Gamaliel. <clears throat> Sorry. He was the rabbi that he studied under, and that's going to come up later, so remember that name. But he was basically a very good lawyer, and he was so determined, he was so driven, that this would lead him to a seat on the, on the Jewish Supreme Court, which they called the Sanhedrin. And he did this at the time uh, of the story that we're going to pick up during the stoning of Stephen. He would have been between 32 and 34 years of age. And they couldn't even start ministry until age 30. So within a couple years, he has achieved um, the highest level um, that a Pharisee could get to. This was a really maddening time for the Pharisees because they were trying to stamp out you know, this movement, this Jesus followers. Um, and they thought that we're, they were doing this for a holy reason for God. And so they started persecuting the church. Here they had already killed their leader and things didn't slow down. They continued to grow and they started persecuting them. But what happened was the opposite effect. The church actually spread. It's kind of like a fire that you try to stamp out, but then the coals spread and start fires elsewhere. Um, as they started to flee Jerusalem, they went into other cities and started churches there. Very maddening time for them. Before Stephen goes before the Sanhedrin, there is a story here, and I mentioned Gamaliel, and we're going to come back to this, of Peter. So Peter, one of Jesus' right-hand men, he's out proclaiming the gospel, preaching, and they drag him in in front of this uh, Supreme Court. And so this is what happens. we go to the next slide. And this is actually um, Stephen, so I skipped a slide. But um, he's basically uh, talking to them, and he's declaring not only the Old Testament prophecies, but also how they all point to Jesus. And they all are just about ready to grab him and throw him out of the city and take him and kill him. And all of a sudden, Saul's mentor, Gamaliel, stands up. And I have to picture Saul sitting there thinking, oh, he's going to give it to him now. But what he says, he says, put them out. I want to talk to you guys. Get them out of here. And he says, listen, you guys need to be careful what you do with these men. You need to not touch them. And, he, and you just have to imagine Saul's jaw dropping at this point. And he says, you know, there was a guy who said he was something big, and he had a whole bunch of followers, and he got killed, and he amounted to nothing, right? And then there's another one, and he developed quite a following, Judas the Galilean appeared and acquired a following, and he also fizzled out, and people following him were scattered to the four winds. Let's see if we have the next one. So I'm telling you, hands off these men. Let them alone. If this program or work is merely human, it will fall apart. But if it is of God, there is nothing you can do about it, and you'd better not be found fighting against God. I just think that's interesting. The Holy Spirit had to have been working on Gamaliel, the most well-known teacher and Pharisee of the day. But Saul, um, he he was ending up a little differently than his mentor uh, because at this point he gets furious. And I can just imagine him sitting there and he's listening to Peter, this uneducated fisherman who hadn't gone through any of this training, talking about the Old Testament, testifying to Jesus Christ, And his mentor, Gamaliel, basically saves his life. They were getting ready to drag him out and kill him, and his mentor saves his life. So he didn't quite turn out like his mentor. Um, In fact, he gets in a rage, 
And one of the commentaries that I had read was talking about this rage and said that perhaps he was so angry because he did not have an answer to their testimony. Here's somebody who knew, he, he had a superior intellect. He knew everything there was to know about the law, but he didn't have an answer for these people and why they had this hope. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with somebody, and I don't know if it happens on Facebook sometimes because I don't get on there, um, but you may be debating with somebody, kind of a heated discussion, and you're making points and all of a sudden they make a point that you can't, you have no rebuttal for, and uh, you start to get angry. And then you say something stupid like, well, you're an idiot, which is a really, uh, really mature response uh, when you can't think of an answer. But uh, he's just incensed. And so he goes to the council and he says, listen, give me papers, give me permission to go to these other cities. In fact, there's one in Damascus, and there's a whole bunch of Jews up there, and I think there are a bunch of them that are following this Jesus guy. Give me permission to go up there and drag them back down here arrested. So he has permission to go breaking into houses, storming into synagogues, and dragging these men and women out. And I want to be sensitive here because we've had crazy things happen in the church, but if you can imagine, if there was even the remote possibility that the U.S. government could break in here, into your house, into this church at any time, just because we called on the name of Jesus? Would that change our plans on Sunday morning? Just something to think about. These people were radical. Saul had the authority of the high priest until he ended up meeting the real high priest in Jesus. You know, when he writes to the churches um, later on, he tells his testimony over and over again. And he's telling them where he came from so they can have a better understanding of what he is now and what he's saying. And I think that's really important. I think we need to hear more testimonies. I have heard some that have really rocked me when you hear where people came from and where they are today. And there's only one reason for that. I had, a, I had somebody tell me once that one of the best evidences of Jesus is the power of a transformed life. How do you explain that? Somebody who's been hooked on drugs, who is, you know, almost dead in a gutter that now is in a church full of life proclaiming Jesus. I've seen it and it's incredible. Why does he do this? Why does he recount his testimony? I think he does it for a couple reasons. First, it renews his feelings of humility. If you think about where he came from and what he did to where he is right now, it laid him low. It also reignites his love and his zeal for what he's doing. He starts getting a lot of passion back. So if you have lost your love and feeling for Jesus, okay, that didn't get a very good laugh. Okay. <laughs> then what you need to do is remember everything that what Christ has done for you. It deepens his love and appreciation for the gospel of grace. They called the apostle of grace and that drives his passion, also makes him hopeful for others. We all have those people in our life that we feel might be beyond hope, right? Um, we think there's no way, it would be impossible to get a hold of them because they're so stubborn. Uh, but God is a God of the impossible, right? And it's our job to tell our testimony so that people can see the good things that God can do. You know who some of the, the most difficult people to convert are? Good people. Moral people. Because they say, why do I need to add Jesus to my mix? I'm a good person. I don't cheat on my taxes. 
I'm good to my kids, you know, I work hard. Why do I need Jesus? Depravity is an internal disease. You can't see it on the outside, but it eats away at us on the inside. We just don't see the need for a savior. But there is a difference between being as bad as you can be and, as, and being as bad off as you can be. And if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are as bad off as you can be, regardless of how bad you're acting. Okay. I'm going to go back to Stephen. Uh, The first time we meet uh, Saul is a very bloody scene. Uh, We meet him at the martyr of Stephen. And this is the first recorded martyr in the Bible. And it says that he was giving his testimony just like Peter. And he stands up. And um, this is the part, the, the slide where he's talking about their calloused hearts. And he's just ripping into him. And he says, as you continue to be so bullheaded, calloused on your hearts, flaps on your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit, just like your ancestors did. Was there ever a prophet who didn't receive the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the Messiah. And you've kept up the family tradition, traitors and murderers, all of you. That's not going to make you any friends. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift wrapped, and you squandered them. At that point, they went wild a rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed. He only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. And he said, oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. And yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in a full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. And the ringleaders took off their coats so they weren't inhibited, so they could chuck those rocks better, and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. And as the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. And then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words, and then he died. So that, that phrase, a young man named Saul, uh, means a man in his prime. Uh, but not yet to the age of 40. So I'm past my prime, apparently, now. Uh, But between uh, 30 and 40. Now, he he was so self-righteous, he didn't even stoop to picking up the rocks. He just stood there, and later on he said, I cast my vote against him. So they lay their coats down, and he looks on approvingly um, as this happens. And I can't help but wonder if later on, when the Holy Spirit starts working on him, that he's thinking back to this incident where Stephen said loud enough for everyone to hear them, God, forgive them for what they're doing. How could somebody sit there and say that as they're dying? Okay. So we're going to go to the conversion now of Saul. You know, there's lots of conversion stories. I've heard some that really make me scratch my head. I mean, Jesus is faced in a piece of toast type of stuff, right? But It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because what it does is it puts somebody, it levels them to the point where they are ready to receive. They've had a change of mind. They've had a change of heart, but there is only one salvation story, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it says that Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. 
this, this meant this breathing threat, breathing in and breathing out. This is becoming part of his DNA. This is becoming part of who he is. He is consumed with persecuting them. So he tits off for Damascus. I'm going to read this out of uh, Acts 26 because it has a very important detail in it um, that uh, isn't in the first account. It says, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun and shining all around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad is a very long stick that they used with a metal point on it to get oxen moving. So if the oxen weren't moving or if they were going someplace they weren't supposed to go, they would take this long stick and they would jab it right in their hind end, right? And it was a long stick because once they didn't like that, they would start kicking back and you wanted to be as far away from those hindquarters as you could be. Jesus says, you're persecuting me, but it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're not hurting me, Saul. You're hurting yourself. And when we resist the Holy Spirit in our life that's tugging at us, that's going to do nothing but hurt ourselves, right? His pride was hurting him. And he says goads, not the goad, which means there are multiple times that the Holy Spirit had been working on him. And maybe that's one of the reasons why he was so angry. The Holy Spirit kept putting it in there. I think he's thinking of Peter in front of the Sanhedrin and Stephen and his response. And he just gets angrier and angrier. We've heard this story, and I don't, you may have told it earlier, but I, it's a great story, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, the, the story about the little girl who is riding in the truck with her grandfather. And they're going down the road, and she stands up in the seat. And he says, honey, you can't stand up. Sit down. So she sits down. And then a few minutes later, she stands up again. And he says, now, listen, I already told you once, it's not safe. Sit down. So she does. And then a third time, she stands up. And he says, it's against the law. I'm going to pull this truck over, and I'm going to swatch her behind if you don't stop it. And she looks at him, and she starts to sit down. And she says, all right, I'll sit down. But I'm standing up on the inside. And we do that sometimes. We say, we'll play by the rules, but on the inside where my heart is, I'm still standing up. And we resist the Holy Spirit. In the best possible future, if you do repent and come to Jesus, the best possible future, you're going to have some bitter regrets, right? And some really difficult habits to try and undo. But what happens sometimes is when people continue to resist the Holy Spirit, they get a hard heart. They get a hard heart. And they, get, they fall into deep despair, because they lose sight of God as their heart, heart continues. So Jesus levels Saul, just like he leveled all those people in the garden. He puts him in a position where he can receive, and he tells him to go into town, and he'll find instructions for what he's supposed to do next. It says, when he stood up, he was physically blind, physically. But I think that this is you know, an example of him being blind spiritually for everything he knew. He could not see, couldn't connect the dots. And Jesus used this often when he talked to the Pharisees, he would tell them, you are blind. You can't see. And sometimes they'd even reply, are we blind? (laughs) Pretty thick, I guess. So here's, here's another example of what 
he does, they're, they're peppering him with questions about the law. Because they're like, if we can trip him up on the law, we can really take him to task. We can get him in trouble. And he answers their questions. And he says, I got one for you. And he doesn't ask them a question about the law. He asks them a question about the promise, the promised Messiah. And he says, okay, if, uh, if the Messiah comes from the line of David and he's called the son of David, why does David, when he writes, call him Lord? How can he be his Lord if he's from the line of David? And they were stumped. They couldn't answer the question. And it says, after that, they did not dare ask him any more questions. And the answer to that is he is his son because earthly, humanly, he did come in the line of David. But he is Lord because spiritually, he was of the, the tribe of Judah. And he came not through uh, Joseph's line, which actually um, was, was cursed at one point. And uh, he came through Mary's line. If you look at the genealogies, very, very cool. He was born of a virgin. He wasn't born of man. He was born of a woman, of, uh, of the Holy Spirit. So that's how he can be son of David, but also his Lord, just to answer that question. But he lights into him in this next slide. And he goes into what is called the seven woes to the Pharisees. And if you read this whole thing, it's about two pages worth of red lettering. As he rips into him, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. Outside, you guys look really good when you keep the rules. But inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so the outside may become clean. And he did this quite a bit, calling them blind. So Saul gets leveled. He goes into town. He's blind. This once very independent, proud man is now dependent on other people to take him by the hand and lead him to the house of a guy named Judas. The older I get, the more I am convinced that there's no such thing as coincidence. There's not. There's no th such thing as coincidence. Uh, little things, big things, God is moving behind the scenes. So whenever you see something and you're tempted to say, wow, that's a weird coincidence. No, it's God. So we should really try to take that word out of our vocabulary. It's interesting that he goes to a house of a guy named Judas. Jesus was betrayed by a man named Judas. And now Saul is going to the house where he is going to receive salvation. Just interesting to me. So he sits three days in, uh, in, in darkness. Uh, he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. He's just praying. And I would suggest to you that he was praying quite differently than he had in the past. Not just these formula, repetitive prayers that he was saying before. I would say that he is now desperately praying to God, trying to figure this out. And then this is one of the coolest parts. I love this. A man named Ananias comes on the scene. And he is really an unsung hero, but his impact on this should resonate with every single one of us. In Acts 9, 10 through 16, it says, There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him a vision, and we covered this earlier, Ananias. And he responds, Here I am, Lord. Get up and go to Straight Street. So he, he says a very specific street and a very specific house to the house of Judas. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. And Ananias talks back to God, basically. He's like, whoa, you must be mistaken, God. Do you know who this guy is? 
I, it astounds me in scripture. There are multiple examples of God appearing and talking to people or angels talking to people and they talk back to God. It's amazing. I, I would like to think that if I was in that situation, I would not do that. But the same uh, sin nature uh, resides in me. But he says, you got to be kidding. Now, think about this. You know, the Olympics are going on now and it's over in Korea. This would have been the equivalent of God telling you there is a guy named Kim Jong-un and I have chosen him to be one of my representatives. I want you to go pray for him. That would be hard to believe, first of all. Second of all, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near where he was staying. But he says, go to the house, put your hands on him and heal him. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And he doesn't say, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer because of the things he's done. He says, I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer because of my name. So God says, don't argue, go. And when he walks into the room, he calls him, he greets him and he says, brother Saul, brother Saul, immediately. His faith is incredible that he walks into the room and he believes what God said and he calls him brother, which is immediate acceptance. I mean, they don't, they use brother and as a term of affection, not the way that we use brother today where we kind of call everybody brother. Uh, but this was a term in the church, uh, that was very endearing. So Saul came to lay violent hands on the church in Damascus. And what he found was hands of mercy and healing in Ananias. So you've got this guy in Ananias. He's just a faithful follower. It says that he was very well respected in the community. And he's just a guy following Jesus, being faithful. I think it's just, it's important to note that they didn't send Peter. God didn't send John. He didn't send these pillars of the church to go confront him. He sent a man right where he was, who was being faithful and I think oftentimes in life, we think, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, God. I'm not having an impact on anybody. There's so much good I could be doing if I was just over there or if I was given this opportunity. I could do so much good. But what he asks of us is to be faithful and to do what he asks. And you'll never know the impact that you have on the lives of other people until you stand in front of them on that day. And if we do it, I think you'll be amazed. Actually, I don't think. I know you'll be amazed. Obedience always stimulates growth. The obedience of Ananias going to Saul, that's where everything starts to explode, starts to grow. Obedience always stimulates growth. So Saul's blindness is, cu is, is cured. The, the curtain has fallen now, right? Because it said something like scales have fallen from his eyes. And I think at that point, when he was three days in darkness, he had to have been going over the Old Testament. I remember he knew this whole thing by heart. He had to have been going through it. He just met Jesus, who everybody said was the Messiah. He had to be going through all of those prophecies and try to figure this thing out. And I think when they, the scales fell from his eyes, the light bulb went on. And he could see how it all pointed to Jesus. Did you know there are over 300 prophecies, over 300, that Jesus fulfilled during his time here on earth? Over 300. So the next time that someone with superior intellect uh, tries to tell you that Christianity is a crutch, it's just a crutch for people who don't 
really understand or can't deal with life. There was a team of uh, mathematicians who decided to look at the probability that one man could even fulfill the top eight. And these were ones that he didn't have control over, by the way. He didn't have control whether or not he was going to be over the tribe of Judah, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, that he was going to be crucified, that was going to be his death. And they came up with this number. The probability of one man fulfilling these eight prophecies was one in ten to the 17th power. Now that is a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That is approaching a mathematic impossibility at that point, but not for God. He's the God of the impossible. Jesus tells them in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So they're they're learning the Old Testament, the law, and they think that that's going to bring them life. But later on he writes, uh, Paul writes to the churches, and he says this just brings death. Knowledge of the law only shows us how far away from perfection we are. Converting grace opens up the eyes of the soul. We sang that song before, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. We want to see you. And converting grace does just that. So he is baptized and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, now he has gone from just Saul, a Pharisee, to a saved son of God who's going to do big things. And it says that immediately he got up. After he ate and was strengthened, immediately he went into the synagogues. He didn't wait. He didn't go talk to anybody. Immediately he went and was proclaiming the Christ. Now, if you saw him walking into the synagogues, you know that he has been walking in and dragging people out and persecuting them. And all of a sudden, he stands up and starts preaching Jesus to everybody. It's pretty, pretty incredible. He no longer is proudly blind, but he humbly sees This is where he received his identity change. Now, I was looking for, just like Abram and Jacob and these different name changes that happened, I was looking for the part where Saul got his name changed into Paul, but you're not going to find it. And here's the reason why. He had two names. Remember when I said he was born in Tarsus? That was a Roman colony. He had Saul, which was his Hebrew name, and Paul, which would have been his Roman name. Now, this is important later on because Tarsus was a city where the Jews were granted Roman citizenship, and that comes into play in his ministry in the future. Interesting to note that Paul, the meaning of his name, is small. So he has gone from Saul, which was asked for, this very proud name, you know, good lineage, to small. And as his ministry transitions to the Gentiles, he goes by this name Paul, he is now humbled, right? He has been brought low, and he is embracing his smallness. He said to the churches, he said, I have become all things to all men that I might win some. So to the Jews, I'm Saul. To the Gentiles, I'm Paul. To the, to the blue collars, I'm a tent maker. Um, to the Roman citizens, I am one. He said that I have become all things that I might, might win some. This is how far his transition took him. In Philippians 3, it says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing them up and I'm throwing them in the trash along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. 
Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are now gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. That is literally the 180 that has been done in his life. And so now he starts this process of regeneration. Um, He's a changed man. And what happens is he goes into the desert. Says he goes into the desert. And we don't know how long he was there, but if you look at the Old Testament prophets and even Jesus, they went into the desert for a time of testing. And I think also as he's being regenerated, um, you know, Jesus and God are teaching him more about the scriptures, the prophecy. He knew the Old Testament, but now he is, he's getting his witness together. And it says he was three years there in Damascus. When I read this, sometimes I skip over the fact that, okay, he's saved, and then he goes on his missionary journeys, and then he starts writing letters. He was three years in Damascus doing ministry there. And then it said, then he went down to Jerusalem. Now, Ananias called him Brother Saul, and he spends three years in community there. And the community basically rescued his life. And there was a plot hatched to kill him. That community of believers put him in a, in a basket and lowered him over the wall so that he could escape. And if you have recently, if you are a new Christian or even if you are an old Christian and you are living outside of community, you are in danger of being killed spiritually. And I don't mean that you're not saved. I just mean that you could shrivel up from the inside by not living in community with other believers. That's what we are called to. And that's what he did for three years there in Damascus. And then he heads down to Jerusalem, heads down there uh, to see Peter. He's saying, let's go down there and see Peter, three years. And when he gets there, they're scared of him. They won't meet with him. They're freaked out. Now, the news spread from Jerusalem to Damascus before he even got there that he was coming. Three years he's been preaching in Damascus. And you think that would have made it down to Jerusalem with some pretty good evidence. But when he shows up, they're scared of him. Ananias embraced him immediately. And here we have the disciples that are pretty freaked out that he's even there. And I didn't think I was going to have time to talk about it, but I'll mention it just because I think it's super important. There is a guy named Barnabas. It says, but Barnabas. Barnabas is an incredible part of this story. And his name means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement, Barnabas. He literally grabs hold of him and drags him into where the disciples are and says, listen to me. I have spent time around this man. And he testifies to what he's done. Barnabas is a door opener. And I think in the church and as Christians, more of us need to be door openers. Introducing grace and mercy and Jesus everywhere we go so that people keep bumping into Jesus because we're opening that door. We're not gatekeepers. Okay, so he escapes another plot there in Jerusalem. Um, He was only there 15 days before they hatched a plot to kill him there. And so they ship him off. They ship him back to his hometown back in Tarsus as they go. And it's interesting because it says after he left... 
the church prospered and grew and had peace and more people were being added to the church. So kind of humbling. He's there two weeks and they're trying to kill him. He leaves and the church grows. Not exactly what he was planning on because here he is this super qualified person. He's preaching Jesus. He's going to change things in Jerusalem. And God says, nope, you're out of here. Go back to your hometown. And then the church starts growing. There was peace. He was in Tarsus for anywhere between 10 and and 13 years, just waiting, being faithful, teaching, going in that area, talking in the synagogues, debating people, showing them they're the Christ, just waiting until Barnabas comes and gets him again and takes him, and then they start on their missionary journeys. So here you have another long waiting period, and I know so many times in our life we feel like we are just in wait We know that we should be faithful. We know that there's things that we should be doing, but we're just waiting. And what are we doing with our wait? And I don't mean New Year's resolutions. What are we doing with our wait? Are we being faithful? Are we studying? Are we preparing ourselves? So you might be thinking, okay, that's a nice history lesson. What does that mean for me? How do I take that out of here? Well, I don't know where you are on your journey, right? Maybe you are sitting here and you're at a point of conversion. Your mind, your heart, you can feel the Holy Spirit tugging on you, but you don't know what what to do. You keep bumping into Jesus everywhere you go. You know, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, not any other day. If the Holy Spirit is goading you, don't resist. Maybe it's time for that name change, for that identity change. D.L. Moody, who was a very famous Christian evangelist, um, was preaching one day in Chicago, and he said something that he had never said before and honestly never said again. He was preaching, and he had been preaching all day, and he was getting very tired, done multiple services in front of an outdoor audience. And as he was getting near the end, he said this. He said, Now think about all that stuff that I just told you. Think on those words. And when you come back here next week, you'll have a chance to respond to the gospel next week. And no no sooner had he got those words out of his mouth than fire engines started screaming past and going by. It was October 8th, 1871, when the Chicago fire broke out, and over 300 people lost their lives in those fires. And afterwards, D.L. Moody was just crushed. And he said, some of those people could have been at the services that day. I'll never give people a week or any amount of time to think over the gospel because he said today is the day to respond. Maybe you're just starting out, as I mentioned, and uh, in that regeneration phase, and we're living in community. Um, I, would, uh, I would encourage you to start Uh, finding other Christians to keep you sharp. You know, it says that even though our outer man is falling apart, which is very evident to all of us, our inner man, our spirit man is being renewed day by day. Um, There was another pastor who was preaching uh, outdoors. That seems to be popular back in the day. Um, And he was, he was preaching to a crowd, and there was a very politically charged time. And a man stood up, and he was for uh, socialism, and he said, Listen, you see that guy over there in the shabby clothes? Socialism will put a new suit of clothes on that man and make him 
look brand new. And the, the witty pastor replied, your politics may put a new suit on that man, but only Jesus can put a new man in that suit. That's the only way our identity can be really changed. I've gone through some difficult times in my life, and I can tell you that if I did not have community, if I did not have people around me that could help carry me through that, see me through it, I, I would be a different person today. I don't know where I'd be. So I can tell you, we have real life groups. We have women's Bible studies. We have men meeting uh, during the week and on the weekends. There are opportunities to get plugged in. Uh, we've talked about from time to time the importance, and Sean has talked about the importance of writing things down. If you write it down, if you keep it in front of you, um, you will remember it. And so what I would suggest as kind of an action plan for all of us is to get an ID card. And by ID card, I mean get a life verse, a life verse. Look in the Bible and find a verse that resonates with who you want to be. What do you want your life to look like? What do you want that destiny to to be fulfilled? And so I suggest you find a verse, print it out, put it in your bathroom, put it in your car, your wallet, wherever, and keep it in front of you and read it as the promise of what you want to grow into. The Bible says without vision, the people perish. They they throw off restraint. And if we can keep pointed in the right direction, if we can have that ID, so to speak, uh, that will certainly keep us keep us in the right direction. Um, I'm going to kind of wrap up here and then the, uh, the worship team can come up and play. But if the Holy Spirit's tugging on you and you feel like today's the day of salvation, after we dismiss, come up. Come up front and pray with someone. Talk about it. Don't leave today. We are not promised tomorrow. Billy Graham In 1984, he said this. He said, what will you be like as a Christian 10 years from now? Many people will be walking with Christ and serving him in various capacities around the world. But for others, there will be a tragedy because 10 years from now, they'll have lost their burning zeal and love for Christ. Not necessarily because they wanted to or because they set their heart in rebellion against God, but because they set their life by the world's agenda. Then Christ and his commission gradually dims. Think about the testimony. Think about what God's done for you and in the lives of other people. Don't set your your life by the world's agenda. At the end of your life, nobody's going to care how much TV you watched, how how much sports you played, how much gardening you did. None of that's going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with God and with other people. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.